Well, morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. Um, names are good fun, aren't they? And uh, this time of the year, it's a big challenge to learn everyone's names. Believe it or not, there's 126 new students at Ridley this semester. Uh, most of you are not here, uh, but you're out there in uh, other places online. But nonetheless, lots of names to learn. And uh, there's lots of good conversations around names, aren't there? When someone has an unusual name, it's much more interesting than just Brian or something like that. that uh, and, and you can't misspell a name. Uh, well, that's not true. Uh, a name can't be misspelled because if someone tells you that's how they spell it, that's it. Um, in some cultures, uh, getting to the point of calling someone by their first name is a really significant event. In Germany, for example, um, to go from talking to Dr. Rosner to Brian would be um, a moment you'd celebrate with a drink or something like that. That's true. And uh, um, that doesn't uh, need to happen here because no one's ever called me Dr. Rosner. <laughs> um, nicknames and pet names indicate a kind of closeness and intimacy, don't they? It's odd that you know parents give their children their names on the birth certificate and then they call them something else which uh, is usually completely unrelated. Uh, for Winnie the Pooh fans, uh, what's Winnie the Pooh's actual name? Edward Bear is <laughs> Winnie the Pooh's actual name. But he mostly goes by his nicknames, Pooh Bear. However, Tigger calls him Buddy Bear and Christopher Robin calls him Silly Old Bear. And uh, that's often a sign of intimacy and affection where um, you have a different name for someone. I've been called B-Roz and Rosniak at different <laughs> points by students in the college. Uh, in Australia, uh, we tend to shorten names, and when we can't shorten them, we lengthen them. So, uh, Bezant, I'm told, can be called Beza. I've never heard it, but uh, that's what he tells us. And Bird become Birdie. There are a few of my favourite biblical scholars' names too. Eugene Boring. <laughs> and then Hans M. Barstad is another one. It's true. So the, the bottom line is that names are important and it's important that someone knows your name. So if someone knows your name, they know you. There's a personal acquaintance and uh, familiarity. And as we saw in Isaiah, God calls us by name. And it's highly significant that God knows our names. And there are certain benefits and blessings that come from having your name known to God. Our New Testament reading, John 20, is a passage in which someone's name is very important. You'll have noticed that's when Jesus is recognised by Mary uh, when he says her name. And just saying a person's name in a familiar way, and I'll come back to this, can uh, show just how deep your relationship is with someone. It's probably my favourite passage in John. It's uh, the first appearance of Jesus after his re resurrection, so it's this climax to the gospel. Uh, it's the first time that someone proclaims to others the good news of the resurrection. And to see the passage in full colour with surround sound, what you need to do is remember earlier parts of the gospel. So it's like watching a really good movie. You know those movies where you watch a scene at the end and you think, oh, I didn't realise that, uh, that that had that significance. And it makes you want to go back and watch the movie again. And that's how uh, John is constructed. On first reading it's all interesting enough, but then your mind just jumps back and forward and we'll do some jumping back and forward around John just to bring out the full meaning and colour and vibrancy of the passage. 
Anyway, the story of Jesus and Mary Magdalene in John 20, it'll show us five things. I'll go through the five things for us. The first thing is Mary's grief. So first in verses 11 to 13, we see Mary weeping. And the narrator brings this out by repeating it four times. Uh, see verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over. And then later on the passage, they asked her, the angels asked her, woman, why are you crying? And then Jesus, when he first appears, asks her in verse 14, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? There are obviously lots of reasons to cry, and some of us cry more easily than others. But there is this focus on Mary's grief here at the absence of Jesus. That's the reason she's crying. Now, Richard Borkham comments on the passage that maybe this recalls Isaiah 25 verse 8, an allusion here, which says, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. A wonderful moment, uh, pregnant with meaning, isn't it? Where the resurrected Jesus wiping out death then wipes away tears. Secondly, in verses 14 and 15, we see Mary seeking, weeping and now seeking. In verse 14, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise it was Jesus. He asked her two questions. Why are you crying? And who is it that you are looking for or seeking? Uh, the verb to look for is often translated to seek in other parts of John. This is one of the points we want to head back to earlier bits of the gospel. In 138, the search begins for Jesus. Jesus is quite elusive in the gospel of John. So Jesus asks Andrew and Philip in 138, what do you seek? And the answer is, given a few verses later, we've found the Messiah. So seeking the Messiah is a big deal in John's gospel. And the successful seeking of Andrew and Philip contrasts with much of the other seeking in the gospel, where the Jewish leaders are seeking for Jesus. But as he says in 734, you will seek me, but you will not find me. That's what Jesus says uh, to the Jewish leaders. And it's true, most of the examples of pe people seeking Jesus in John are for wrong or inadequate reasons. And when it comes to this theme, You've kind of got bookends in the gospel or an inclusio to use the literary term. So in the first chapter, you've got what do you seek? And in the last chapter, whom do you seek? And it's only the last occurrence of seeking that corresponds to the first. And uh, what is found exceeds what is sought. And also the seeking is kind of turned on its head, isn't it? Because it's more about being f found than finding. So finding God, we do find God, but the truth is he finds us. And that's what we see with Jesus and Mary here. Third, we see Mary known intimately and personally by Jesus in verse 16. It's such a lovely moment. The two questions from Jesus, why are you crying? What do you seek? Are not enough for Mary to recognize him, even though it's his voice. He's been resurrected physically. In fact, in John 20, 15b, she mistakes him for the gardener. So it's not the carpenter, it's the gardener, she thinks. And uh, to clear up the misunderstanding, Jesus utters a single word, Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So familiar was the way he said her name 
that she immediately recognized. And this is true in some of my friendships too. I have a friend called Frank, known him for almost 40 years. And uh, um, Frank, we talk on the phone pretty regularly and catch up when we can. So when Frank rings, he usually says, G'day, Brian, and I say, Frank! <laughs> that's how I, uh, and everyone in the house knows it's Frank. And that's just, I don't know how it happened, but that's, that's just how it happens. <laughs> and uh, there is this familiarity and intimacy and friendship that's quite deep when uh, Frank rings. I have another friend, Richard Gibson. He happens to be the principal up at uh, um, BST in Brisbane. And his way of saying my name is unmistakable to him as well. He calls me Brian. <laughs> just the way he says it. And this is what happens with Jesus and Mary. Just that moment of recognition comes when Jesus says her name. Whatever her cause of blindness, the single word Mary, spoken as Jesus had always uttered it, was enough to remove her blindness. And her anguish and despair is swallowed up in astonishment and delight. Because it's actually Jesus standing before her. Mary answers Jesus in her customary manner, Raboni, indicating her relationship to him as a disciple and acknowledging his authority. And interestingly, back to chapter 1, the uh, first disciples responded to Jesus' question about seeking in 138 with the word rabbi. And Raboni is just an extended form of the same address. Jesus knows Mary intimately and personally. He knows her by name. It's a lovely moment, isn't it? And addressing someone by name is, is a sign of friendship, of course, isn't it? So 3 John 15, the Apostle John says, Greet the friends by name. And uh, at Jesus' Last Supper in chapter 16 of John, he promises a reunion with his friends. And this is the fulfillment of that reunion. And Mary was one of only four friends who stood by him near the cross in chapter 19. So she's a very dear friend of Jesus. As it turns out, just while we're talking about names, of the four people standing there, they're all women, three of them were called Mary. Um, now, at this point you might say, well, it's lovely for Mary, she's weeping and Jesus wipes away her tears. Great for Mary, Jesus knows her by name, but what's that got to do with me? Well, does it apply to you and me? Does Jesus know each of us by name? Here, I think what we need to understand is the extraordinary and transforming knowledge of Jesus, of all of his disciples. And the text in John which explains all this is John 10, right in the middle, the Good Shepherd discourse, where Jesus says, uh, the gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. So we have here an illustration. John 20 really illustrates John 10, how Jesus stands, and apparently this is what um, you did in the ancient Near East and in Palestine with uh, your sheep. They may have been mixed up amongst uh, other uh, shepherd's sheep. You'd stand at the gate, you'd call out. Um, I th I'm not sure about this, but I don't think you called them by name. It's kind of an exaggeration. You call just your voice would be enough for the sheep to come. But this is the only place in the Bible where animals are named, and I think it has great significance. 
So it's not only Mary Magdalene that Jesus knows by name. The saying goes for all of those, as it says in verse 4 in chapter 10, all of those who are his own. When he has brought out all his own. So that includes every one of us. If you're a believer in Jesus, he knows you by name. And he calls you by name. And in the flow of John's narrative, the parable teaches in John 10 that Jesus comes to the sheep pen of Judaism and calls out his own sheep individually to constitute this new messianic flock. But Jesus has others in mind also. In verse 16, he actually says this, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. That's a great verse for us, friends. He has other sheep. That's us. And he knows us by name as well. Then the parable goes on to compare the relationship of Jesus to his sheep to the relationship of Jesus to his father. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Jesus' relationship with his father illustrates the shape and nature of his relationship with us as his sheep. So if you think the father and the son know each other intimately, and I'm pretty sure that's what we teach in Trinitarian theology. Is that right, Scott? Yep. Yep. <laughs> that's how well Jesus knows you. The, the comparison is remarkable, isn't it? And just as the Father knows the Son, so the shepherd knows the sheep, intimately and personally. And the intimacy of that relationship with the Father is actually introduced, here we go, back in John chapter 1, where it says that the one and only Son to quote the King James Version, is in the bosom of the Father. That's an unusual um, uh, idiom in our day, but uh, other translations struggle to bring it out. They talk about uh, close to the Father's heart. And the Father and the Son, that's how closely related they are. And Jesus compares our relationship with him to that intimate personal relationship. In fact, the other place where we get someone leaning on someone's bosom is uh, in John 13. There was someone leaning on uh, one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. Jesus had a special affection for one of the disciples and it was him who was leaning back on his chest, that kind of intimate familiarity. So the love between the Father and the Son, that unsurpassable intimacy, is the source from which our relationship with God and with Jesus derives. Being known by Jesus produces this intimate and abiding relationship modelled on that wonderful relationship of the Father and the Son. Now as it turns out, throughout the Bible, God knows his people by name. And if we had time, uh, we could spend quite a bit of time on this. Uh, just briefly in Isaiah 43, as we had read, it says, uh, I summoned you by name, you are mine. Bring my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth. Uh, sometimes God changes names, going down the nickname line. So uh, Abram goes to Abraham, Sarai goes to Sarah, Jacob goes to Israel, Simon goes to Cephas, etc. So there's this uh, yeah, um, affection there and intimacy that comes through at that point as well. And then there are three very odd passages, I have to say, in Isaiah where God gives names to people and we're not even told what they are. So in Isaiah 56, he says to the eunuchs, I will give you a name better than sons and daughters. I will give you an everlasting name that will endure forever. In Isaiah 62, 
he says uh, to his people, you will be called by a new name. Now listen to the end of us here. That the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And then in Isaiah 65, he says to his servants, he will give you another name. New Testament has a similar uh, little bit of teaching. Again, pretty odd, I admit. In Revelation 2, in one of the letters to the seven churches, the church at Pergamum, uh, suffering persecution, two bits of encouragement are given. Um, hidden manna from heaven and a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. There's this family relationship that we have with God, that uh, we have a nickname at home that only he knows and we learn. So in these verses, our very identity is known only to God, but known only to God and then to us when he tells us. That's how intimately he knows each one of us. And the theme of naming as knowing uh, is reinforced in the Bible's narratives. So this is, isn't always the case, but it's generally the case. The bad guys don't get named and the good guys do. So for example, in the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh is named. No, he's not. He's called the king of Egypt. And then you get two lowly midwives, um, Shifra and Pua, who are named. It's very odd, isn't it? That this famous Pharaoh doesn't get named, but the midwives do. In Ruth chapter 4, Boaz is named, and the name of the kinsman redeemer who doesn't do the job is uh, left out. The, uh, in Genesis 11, the, uh, interestingly, the uh, Tower of Babel builders who wanted to make a name for themselves are never named. <laughs> but in Ezra and Nehemiah, you get these ridiculously tedious lists of names for those who built the wall. And then Tim Keller points out that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is never named, but Lazarus is. So this is a real reversal of values that the Bible gives us. The little guys and girls are named and uh, the big ones are not. So if your life is characterized by faith in and obedience to the Lord, like Shifra, Pua, Boaz and Lazarus, then God knows you by name. So, what difference does it make that uh, we are known to God and Jesus by name? Well, one, our tears may be wiped away as we seek that depth of relationship. Uh, but there are two more things in our passage back in John 20 I want to point to. Um, the fourth point, if you're still counting, is that we see being known by Jesus leads to being known by God and becoming part of his family. Uh, Jesus says in verse 17 to Mary, Don't touch me. I have not ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And you might think, well, that's not that significant. Really, it is though. Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus' relationship to his Father almost gets him killed earlier on in the Gospel. And uh, that's kept exclusively for him. It's only Jesus who addresses God as Father right throughout uh, the Gospel of John. But back in the prologue, here we go again. You might think the prologue is important for John, wouldn't you? Back in the prologue in 1.12, it says, those who believe in Jesus will be given the right to become children of God. And we have to wait right to the end of the Gospel at this point in John 20 when Jesus says to Mary, your father and my father 
uh, will be one and the same. So we end up known by Jesus, known by God in this relationship of a child to a father. Then fifthly and finally in verse 18, we see that being known by Jesus leads to making Jesus known to others. See verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. She immediately goes and proclaims the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I have seen the Lord. And what gave her the confidence to do that is the fact that Jesus knew her and that uh, um, she then knew him. So you've got, um, usually we think of the cycle of evangelism as just a two-step dance. Know Jesus, make him known. There's actually three steps. Known by Jesus, know Jesus, make him known. And the first one's essential because it gives us that stability and confidence to make Jesus known. It's the same thing in two other examples in John's Gospel. There are two other extended conversations Jesus has with individuals where he knows them. In chapter 1, Nathaniel. Nathaniel comes along and he says, there's a, a good guy, he uh, has no guile. And everyone's amazed. And then Nathaniel goes on to tell the other disciples that he's found the Messiah. And then more famously, perhaps, the Samaritan woman in uh, John chapter 4, um, whom Jesus knows thoroughly in this penetrating way, and she's just gobsmacked that he knows all about her. She goes back, and uh, many Samaritans respond to her witness and acknowledge Jesus as the saviour of the world. So being known by Jesus is not just a nice thing personally. It is a warm thing, but it's not just for that purpose. It's to give us that kind of stability and security ourselves so that we can go on and testify and be witnesses. As Mary did, I have seen the Lord. So having the name known to Jesus and God leads to being a child of God and calling him Father. And that assurance will give us confidence like Mary to testify to others of the good news of this personal relationship with God.